Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In 1964, a group by the name of J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers wrote a song called The Last Kiss. Uh, And it's been recorded by some others since then that I'm not familiar with because I don't listen to their music. But the first line of this song said this, Where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so i got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Now, I listen to a lot of music of all kinds, and I listen to a lot of music from the 60s. And whenever a song like that comes on, I'm sure none of you do this, but I argue the theology of things. It irritates my wife, you know. You know, the song comes on and I'll say, oh, how good do you have to be? She, will you shut up? They can't hear you. Will you stop? Um, But the question still needs to be asked, how good do you have to be? Well, Paul is going to say there's none good. And theoretically, you'd have to be perfect to go to heaven see your baby or anyone else uh, but I got to thinking about this week uh, another question why is it that our culture has a bias toward universal salvation when a celebrity or someone that they know dies people just automatically assume that they go to heaven always we have a bias toward universal salvation why is that bias not toward universal judgment I mean given all of the evil in the world you would think that that would be a more accurate bias to say well when they die they they go to hell everyone is condemned rather than commended in this section of the book of Romans Paul destroys the self-righteousness of all of the Jews and then all of the human race. He argues that all men deserve judgment and eternal condemnation because all are depraved. This third chapter of Romans is one of those places where the doctrine of total depravity comes out so clearly. Now, total depravity, again, does not mean that people are as wicked as they can possibly be, but it means there is nothing in man, apart from the grace of God, that is pleasing to God, that can find uh, any favor with them before God. Paul, uh, in this section, and, and in a lot of the rest of the book of Romans, uses a form of argument that was known as a diatribe. That diatribe now means a particularly bitter, invective speech. Then it meant more just a long discourse. But Paul has a number of imaginary questioners, and he's going to theorize. They would ask this. For instance, he has just condemned the Jews along with the Gentiles. And he knows that somebody's going to say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. If, if the law is no good unless you keep it, if circumcision is no, no value unless you keep the law, then what advantage has the Jew? What, what, 
What advantage is there in being a Jew? What advantage is there in having the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Uh, what difference does it make? And are the promises that God made to Israel still valid? Uh, Paul is going to take this up again in the 6th chapter and then again in the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapters. Um, but the first question arises, verse 1, as we might expect of Paul, directly from the context. Again, he's just proven that, that Jews may expect to be judged on the same principle as the Gentile. And the Jew is a sinner, just as much as his hated adversary. So, does this Jewish Christian, Paul, think that the God-originated distinction between Jew and Gentile has been obliterated? Is the Old Testament, which is so full of the earthly uh, spiritual blessing for Israel and so beautifully expressed, uh, really just a gigantic collection of false hopes? Do those messianic prophecies mean anything? <clears throat> um, the then, uh, the first word of, of verse 1, is inferential. It makes the connection with the pre preceding context, what he has said in, in chapter 2. And it opens the window, it lets in light on the apostle's thought and his argument. Uh, Paul, someone, Paul imagines someone saying, Paul... Your theology is thoroughly inconsistent with the admitted privileges and the superiorities of the Jewish nation. So what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Does national origin, covenant relationship with God bear on the standing of Israel before Almighty God? The word advantage literally suggests that which exceeds a usual number or size. There is a comparative sense uh, and a sense of superiority in being a Jew that cannot be overlooked. The practice of circumcision was so distinctive to the Jewish nation that it had practically become a name. <clears throat> this very fact also indicates that the rite, the sign and the seal of the Abrahamic covenant was always present when you're talking about national Israel or when you bring them into consideration. So the question of verse 1 is essentially this. Is the Abrahamic covenant still in force? Has God broken his promise? Does it mean anything? So <clears throat> how is Paul going to answer this question? Now remember where we are here uh, as Paul writes these words to the church in Rome. Israel has rejected the promised Messiah, denounced him, crucified him, and is persecuting his followers with a deadly venom. Further, Christian churches are rising up throughout the world, and they are composed not only of Jews, believing members of the old covenant community, the theocracy of Israel, but also of believing Gentiles. And they both have equal standing in the church. A Gentile has as much standing as a Jew, which was unheard of in the fellowship before. 
it's interesting, there is absolutely no vacillation, no equivocation in Paul's reply. The very brevity of it indicates that. He just says, much in every way. What? What's the advantage? Because to them has been committed the oracles of God. Now, what are the oracles of God? I think here it's better to think of it rather than as the whole Old Testament. More specifically, it is the special and particular truths concerned with the passages of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Jews have a great advantage because they have heard the Word of God. They've heard the promise. What advantage is there in coming to a church building like this uh, on Sunday morning? Because you hear the Word of God. I would encourage unbelievers to go to church because they hear the Word of God. There is a tremendous advantage in hearing the Word of God, of, of knowing who God is, of knowing what God expects. Uh, and that advantage is to anyone who hears it, whether they act on it or not, even though that increases their responsibility as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, the, the oracles of God... Uh, so the, the apostle anticipates another objection. What if some were unfaithful? Now, the reference to unbelief is more appropriate when directed to the specific promises about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Israel rejected the Messiah. They were unfaithful. What does that mean? Uh, the 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 Jews, prior to the coming of Christ, had misinterpreted the Messianic prophecies. They wanted a temporal prince and savior. Uh, and, and, and since Christ had come, they had positively rejected Jesus Christ. Be careful. Be careful, especially in our current climate, that you are not looking for a political savior. Let me tell you something that may shock you. The United States of America does not have to survive. In my opinion, it will not. It doesn't have to survive. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And one is not the other. The kingdom of God will survive forever. The kingdom of man is temporal. It will not. Do not be looking for a political savior. Do not put your faith in politics, either left or right. Vote, be responsible, but remember, it is God who determines the outcome. And again, we've said what is happening in the world today has not caught God by surprise. He's still sovereign. He's still on his throne. Find your comfort in the Scriptures. Find your comfort in the God of the Bible, of, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, not in the political situation. So Paul's answer here basically is this. What advantage is there 
to being a Jew, much in every way. Because first and foremost, to them was granted the Word of God. And more particularly, the Messianic revelation of covenant and law and promises. And above everything else, the Messiah himself. The oracles were committed to Israel. They were stewards of them. They didn't really belong to them. They're the oracles of God. Israel failed to understand them because they were looking for something political rather than something spiritual. They wanted someone who would put them on the throne, make Israel great again. So the promises of God have not failed. The Messiah has come. He came as a suffering servant. He came to die for sinners. He came to deal with sin. He came to provide the atonement. That has not failed. Not in any way. Again, the apostle uh, suggests an objection to his own conclusion. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? It's true that to Israel were extended the oracles of God, some imaginary objector might admit. But Paul, Israel has fallen in disobedience. They've rejected the promises. Doesn't their own unwillingness to receive the promises effectively annul them? And Paul's reply is something like this. Her unbelief does not affect the validity of the promises. What if some have not believed the promises of God? Their unbelief doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. The objection really is a direct challenge to the character of God. It's an attack on His veracity, His truthfulness, His faithfulness. It suggests that man, by being unfaithful, is more powerful than God. That His unfaithfulness might nullify the faithfulness of God. The unbelief of the nation Israel will not render inoperative and powerless the faithfulness of God. That's not going to happen. Paul's answer is very, very simple. First of all, he rejects the question as being abhorrent. The expression, by no means, is a very powerful expression in the Greek. May Ganeto, the King James translates it, God forbid. By no means. A mafia don in New York would say, forget about it. And a surfer dude in California would say, no way, dude. Can't happen. By no means. It, it is as, as powerful an expression as you can have. Actually, if I told you the closest literal rendering of it, you'd be offended because you would say the preacher's cursing in the pulpit. So let's just leave it there and say it's very, very strong. Secondly, Paul adds that the, the faithfulness of God is to be maintained even if when people contend with him in court, maintaining of it demands that every case 
a guilty verdict be returned against men. Let God be true and every man a liar. Doesn't matter. God is faithful. God is true. Whether every man on earth lies or not doesn't affect the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God. If it is necessary to say that all seven and a half billion people on this planet are liars, God is still true. And finally, Paul appeals to Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 51.4, that great uh, confessional psalm of David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, and David pictures himself in a heavenly tribunal before the divine judge. David is unfaithful, but his judge is proven righteous and clear of guilt. And the same is true with God as regards the promises that he's made to Israel. He is faithful to them, though at this moment Israel stands guilty of unbelief and under judgment. Next, Paul anticipates an objection of being accused of antinomianism. Antinomianism means against the law. Nomos means law. Uh, this ends with much the same in much the same way. Uh, he'll he'll end it by saying their condemnation is just. Uh, basically, what is the the question here is if if I sin and God causes something good to come out of it, why shouldn't I just sin a whole lot? Indicating that my sin is somehow a good thing because God brings good out of it. Uh, and again, that is attacking the righteousness of God. And it's an absurd argument. If that were true, Paul is going to say, then how could God judge the world? Uh, if, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God then unrighteous to inflict wrath upon me? Let's say that I do something that is sinful and wrong, and out of that God brings righteousness then I'm, can I say to God, oh, you can't punish me for that sin because see, look what came out of it. This good thing came out of it. But did my sin cause that? No. It was the power of God, the truthfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. Uh, only human thinking would come up with, with that kind of, of argument. Paul says in verse 6, if that were true, how could God judge the world? How would it possible be possible for him to judge the world? God's righteousness is established not by sin in itself, but, but by sin as dealt with by God, punished by God, pardoned by His grace, are overruled to His wisdom. Since the sinner does not intend to commend God's righteousness by his sin, in other words, when he sins, he's not trying to commend God's righteousness. 
so he can claim no merit when God turns that sin into something for his glory. You remember the account of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis? They were jealous of Joseph, you remember, and they were going to kill him, but yet they, they didn't do that. They sold him into slavery. Joseph goes down to Egypt. He serves in Potiphar's house, refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife, gets thrown in prison, eventually is freed and made second in command, and his brothers come. You remember the story. And then after Jacob, their father, dies, the brothers are afraid that Joseph will exact revenge on them. And he says something in chapter 50 that is beautiful. He, he in essence says, don't worry. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good so that he might save many people alive. Because, or they sinned, let's say that, not because, but they sinned, and it caused God to sit in, uh, that's, that's poor phraseology too. God, knowing what would happen from the beginning of time, used their sin to bring about putting Joseph in command, the second in command in Egypt. That still did not excuse the sin of the brothers. It was still a sinful act. It was still sinful. Because God caused something good to come of it is bringing glory to God, not to the brothers. I mean, the brothers couldn't get to heaven and say, oh, look here, we preserved Israel. How do we do that? We sold our brother into slavery. Oh, yeah, oh, we're, we're quite something, you know. No, not going to happen. Verses 7 and 8, again putting words in the sinner's mouth, Paul essentially asked, if God's truth is increased and God's glory advanced by means of my lying, then why am I brought to judgment? Why can't I just do evil so that good may come out of another biblical example? For 30 pieces of silver, this will be Judas's argument when he stands. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. My sin brought about the cross. My sin brought about atonement. My sin made it possible for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Therefore, God, you can't judge me. I've done something good. Really, Judas, what have you done? Well, I betrayed innocent blood. Not believing Jesus to be the one who would die for sinners, I got him killed. Judas, that doesn't excuse you. Doesn't excuse any of us. Because God can bring glory out of our sin doesn't make our sin any less sinful. Not at all. So you can't use that argument. Paul says, if that's the case, you're going to argue then, I guess, why not do evil that good may come? He's going to have the same argument over in chapter 6. If sin causes grace to abound, then let's sin a lot so that grace may be superabundant. No, that's not the way it works. Paul's enemies are making the charge that that's his slogan. 
I mean, he's antinomian. He's saying, break the law of God all you can because God will use it for good and bring it to his glory. No, 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 no. That's a logically absurd conclusion. Evil is evil, no matter what God may bring of it. What Joseph's brothers did, what Judas did, was evil and sinful. The fact that a sovereign God brought good out of it does not make that action any less sinful. This happens all the time. I know of a case where, tragically, uh, a man committed adultery, left his wife, ran off with another woman. She was not a Christian. But she was converted and baptized because this man being a Christian came back to the Lord and was able to get active in a church again so was his adultery right no but God brought something good out of it but it didn't make the sin right never never does um, you can't overlook man's sin you can't overlook God's justice. Okay, verses 9 through 20. Boy, these verses are really depressing, are they not? <laughs> I mean, whoa, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And on and on and on and on. John Calvin once said, the law is like a mirror. We look in it and see what we are really like. So Paul lifts up the mirror of the Old Testament. These are Old Testament passages from the Psalms and Isaiah, and he's apparently quoting them from memory. Some are complete, some are incomplete, but it gives us a picture of man apart from God. And the, 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 real, uh, the real picture here is, first of all, the universality of sin. Everyone has sinned, Jew and Gentile, everyone. And then a, a second emphasis is on the intensity of the sin. All aspects of human life, both words and works, are affected by sin. Human beings are completely touched by sin. And the apostle concludes the section with a clue to the cause of it all, a quotation from Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. People tend to see themselves in relation to other people. Well, I might be sinful, but I tell you what, I'm not like Bob Kerr. Okay, the only problem is that's not the comparison that needs to be made. You need to compare yourself to God. Well, I might be sinful, but compared to God, whoa, I'm even more sinful than I thought I was. Way, way more sinful. So that's what Paul does here. The word fear is a word of unbelief. Paul's charge is in harmony with all of the Bible's teaching on the nature of sin. Sin is unbelief, which surfaces in rebellion and immorality. But it starts with unbelief. Now, Verse 19, now he moves to the conclusion. 
and he condemns the whole world. The whole world is accountable to God so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he ends this by saying that by works of the law, no human being will be justified. None. As far as the Jew is concerned, his death warrant is written into his birth certificate. <laughs> he has the law of God, but he can't keep it. And so the law, rather than saving him, condemns him. The law condemns us all. Is the law good? Yes. Is it holy? Yes. Is it perfect? Yes. What does it do for us? It shows us that we are sinners. The law shows us that we can't keep it. That's what Paul is going to argue the whole book of Galatians. The law is our tutor, he says. It's our teacher. What does it teach us? We're sinners. We look into the law and we see ourselves as God sees us and we flee to Christ. Because only in Jesus Christ can we ever have a righteousness that is pleasing to God. Righteousness cannot come from self-effort. Jesus, speaking of the self-righteous, said this to them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Jesus wasn't saying, some of you are righteous, you don't need it. What he was saying is, you're all sick. I've come to call sinners, and you're all sinners. And the law plainly tells you that. And I've come to call sinners to repentance. He hoped to point his listeners to an examination of their own heart as up against the word of God. <laughs> Paul is even more blunt he just says, no, none righteous, none good. Can't go to heaven by being good because you can't be good enough. See, now you're going to start arguing theology with songs. You know. Now I've, I've put that thought there. All are sick. All are sinners. All need the great physician. Righteousness has to come from God. Because there is only one bath that can cleanse the stain of sin. And it is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I though vile as he washed all my sins away all have sinned what is the remedy not self effort not, not trying to keep the law flee to Christ believe on Jesus Christ who died for sinners trust him
repent of your sin. Believe on him for eternal life, for he alone can provide it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this.